Hello, listeners, and welcome to Jumpers for Goalposts. Today, we jump in our DeLorean and go back to a time when John Leslie, the Wheel of Fortune presenter, was cleared of indecent assault. A Russian billionaire by the name of Roman parked his yacht outside Stamford Bridge, and he was joined at Chelsea by Duffman, who flew in on his Duff blimp. The real superheroes were Arsenal, who became invincible, and some spotty teenager goes by the name Ronaldo, rocks up at Old Trafford. That's right, today we're going back to the opening weekend of the 2003-2004 season. We see how Leeds get on after their buy one, get one free sale. Mush the Matchman will be at Fratton Park to check up on Harry Redknapp's Premier League virgins, Portsmouth. And this week's foreign fair comes in the way of Real Madrid's Galacticos. The quiz is back. Dan's Maverick of the Week fits nicely between two buns. And Arsene Wenger makes an appearance at Brucey's Bedtime Rituals. What are we waiting for? Let's get going. Juan Sebastian Brock plays it to Super Frank. He dinks it in to Jimmy Floyd. That's a bank. He's creating an angle in the box. He's creating a goal! Chelsea lead again thanks to Jimmy Floyd. He takes off his shirt to show the Dutch Adonis body that he has. His strike with three minutes to go looks like it's won it. Gerard Houllier slumped in the dugout will question Carragher's defending. Chelsea won't mind. Is this the beginning of the Roman Empire? These next two men love Brian Clough, a man who is known for his quotes. Mosh has taken his obsession with Clough a bit too far recently, though. After a family game of Monopoly, in which his dad won, he turned to his father, taking the form of a Leeds-inspired Clough, and said, As far as I'm concerned, the first thing you can do is chuck all your money and all your houses and all your hotels into the biggest dustbin you can find because you've never won any of them fairly. You've done it all by cheating. That's right, it's Daniel McIntyre and Conor Elliott, better known as Dan and Mush the Matchman. Lads, how are we doing today? Very good, Stephen. How are you? I'm Very buzzing. Good, I'm buzzing for 0304. We're going back to the wonder years. What a season. Dan, let's start with you first. So you were deep in the in the wonder years here, a young 16-year-old Dan. The hormones were flying. What were you doing <laughs> in the summer of 03 before the season kicked off? Well, I'm not going to fully disclo- disclose what I was doing, but what I was doing football-wise was I went into my local news agents. And on the back of the paper, on the sports headlines, was Ronaldo signs for Manchester United. I got very excited, like I'm sure many others, and many others have have said the story before, that they believed that Arnhem was finally coming to the Premier League and he had signed for Manchester United. This was not the case, and I was very disappointed to hear that they had signed some teenager called Cristiano Ronaldo. I didn't even buy the paper that day. Well, how wrong were you in hindsight? Oh, so wrong. So wrong. <laughs> More wrong than anyone could possibly be. <laughs> it turned out pretty well in the end. It turned out very well. Uh, Mosh, let's not disclose what you're getting up to either. We wouldn't want the police at your door. I can see you're wearing a lovely piece of attire today. Um, even though it's a cold day, you've still got your T-shirt on, you madman. What have you got for us today? Yes, Steve. A short sleeve, unlike Dano, who likes a long sleeve. Um, it's a very iconic colours of claret and blue sleeves, a nice wee round neck with a wee slight blue trim in it. 
It's sponsored by Diodora and Rover, not the dog. Memories of this, Juan Pablo Angel, the greasy Colombian, banged in a lot of goals in this. David O'Leary was at the helm. Um, Darius Don't Cry for Sell. All of the big Swede Melberg, of course. Dion Dublin's last season in this kit. Bad memories too in the Derby when they wore this kit. Uh, when Peter Elkerman had that howler where he let the ball go under his feet. And where Dion headbutted Robbie Savage in a Derby as well. And J. Lloyd Samuel scored a beach against Charlton. My kit, Steve, is the Aston Villa home kit from 2003-2004 season. A lovely kit it is. Who is it sponsored by? Diodora and Rover. Rover. Oh, my God. Fine. Yes, Fine set of sponsors the there. You just don't see that nowadays. No. Mosh, I've, no. Got a que- I've got a question for you. Would you yes. swap your Aston Villa kit for one night on Roman Abramovich's yacht? No, because... It would be full of gangsters and mobsters, and I don't think it'd come off that boat alive. Very good, very good. Dan, as always, you're wearing some sort of retro jersey. Um, it's, it looks like a fine piece of attire you've got on today. Maybe a bit tight on you. Uh, I don't know if you've put on a few pounds over lockdown. What have you got on there? Yes, Stephen. Today's shirt is a black shirt. Always love a black shirt. It's got a gold trim on both sides, a black collar with a gold V-neck. The Wolves away jersey from the season 2003-2004. Sponsored by Doritos. So guaranteed, as soon as you pull this shirt out of the wardrobe, you're going to fancy a munch. And it's also sponsored by Kitmakers Admiral which I had not seen since they sponsored Leeds United in the season of 91-92. So I don't know how <laughs> or who organised the Wolves relationship with Admiral, but brilliant stuff. Managed by Dave Jones, former Southampton manager. Don't really want to get in the way, left Southampton. Worn by legends and Premier League winners Dennis Irwin and Paul Ince, as well as some retro men, uh, Kenny Miller, Stefan Everson, Jody Craddock, Rainswood Haddock, Mark Kennedy, Nathan Blake, George Nada, Paul Butler, not the postman, Henri Camera, Sean Newton, Carl Court, Oleg Lujny, and Daniel's uncle, Dean Sturridge. <laughs> what a shirt. So many memories and a real old school throwback with Admiral in there as well. I love this shirt. It is a bit snug, but I'm going to keep it on anyway. Lovely stuff. Would you swap your shirt for a night out on the tiles with Jonathan Woodgate and Lee Bowyer? I 100% would not swap this shirt for a night out on the tiles with those two because I like sleeping in my own bed compared to a cell. So the summer of 03 seen record spending levels in the Premier League and it was notably due to one Russian billionaire who was spending an absolute fortune getting a dream team together at Chelsea. So now we look back at the five best bits of business for Dano in this summer transfer window. This is Transfer Business. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, my best bits of business from the summer 2003-2004 begins with a man who replaced a legend. And we all know how hard that is to do. And it's Jens Lehmann, who moved from Borussia Dortmund to Arsenal for the bargain price of 3.5 million, filling the gloves of the retired David Seaman. 
or soon to be retired David Seaman. Uh, he will go go on to achieve great things with Arsenal in their invincible season, of course. Mosh, were you gutted to see Seaman and his ponytail move to City in this summer transfer window? I was, Steve. That image of big David Seaman's tash and ponytail, very iconic in my head. But they replaced him with an angry German. And as the old saying goes, all goalkeepers are mad. And at number four is a loan signing. Always like to try and find a loan or a free um, in the best bits of business. And I'm going for the loan signing of Geiska Mendieta, who moved from Lazio to Middlesbrough on loan for the season 0304. Steve McLaren pulling off a masterstroke to get Mendieta in. Things hadn't quite worked out for him in Lazio, but for a team like Millersburg to get that type of name and quality in through the door was, was a brilliant piece of business. How the hell did he end up at Middlesbrough? They had done it with Janino and now Mendieta. Well, well rumour has it that McLaren showed Mendieta a team sheet um, from Robson's time at Middlesbrough, which had Janino and Emerson and Ravinelli still on the team sheet, and he bought it. Con man. Ah, in at number three, we have a free transfer. And yes, Big Samina is at it again, signing Ivan Campo from Real Madrid on a free. Ivan Campo from Real Madrid, the Bolton Wanderers. I have no idea how it happened. Years later, we would find out how these types of deals happen for Bolton. But in this moment, we're not quite sure. What a signing. Campo still could have done a job for so many clubs, big clubs as well. But he chose Bolton and he had a great relationship there and did very well. And how many pints of wine did Big Sam have that night to celebrate the signing of Campo? Oh, at least 45, Steve. Just particularly the way Big Sam can neck them. Um, he would have been in fine tune getting Ivan Campo in through the door. Definitely. In at number two is a solid signing. He's a world-class footballer and probably a footballer um, we wouldn't have really appreciated in our in our youth because he wouldn't have grabbed the headlines or scored many goals. And it's the signing of Claude Magalelli, who signed for Chelsea from Real Madrid for £16.8 million. I really don't understand why Real Madrid let him go. We'll talk about that later on. But what a signing for Chelsea was a Key component of them going on to win um, Premier League's FA Cups, League Cups, playing in the Champions League final. A world-class player, Magalelli. And not too many players have their own role on the pitch named after them. I think that says it all. Yeah, for any younger listeners who may not remember Claude Magalelli or this period very clearly, Mush, I suppose he's quite like how Kante was for Chelsea in that league winning season, the real anchor of the, the midfield and, and made everything tick. A very efficient defensive midfielder, probably old style type of defensive midfielder, while the modern day holder in front of the back four is kind of a ball player. But Claude, an absolute unsung hero with Chelsea, and it's hard to imagine this dominance of Chelsea in the noughties without him. Brilliant signing. In at number one, I've went for longevity on this one, and it's... I was looking and searching for a number one piece of business, but this simply could not be ignored. And it's the arrival of Cristiano Ronaldo to the Premier League. And he moved from Sporting Lisbon to Manchester United for what turned out to be possibly the bargain of the century and decade. £12 million for Cristiano Ronaldo. He was given the number seven shirt straight away, uh, replacing the departed David Beckham. He would take some time to settle in, no doubt about it. But when he hit the ground... The Premier League probably hasn't seen a better player. Cristiano Ronaldo was my number one best bit of business from the 03-04 summer. He 
famously gave John O'Shea the horrors in a pre-season game, um, which led the United players to actually go up to Sir Alex and say, you know, you need to sign this player. But Fergie was one step ahead of him, wasn't he, Mush? He was indeed. Fergie was always always ahead of everyone else. He'd done many a deal over other clubs. Cristiano, he signed him not for his dress sense, that lovely jumper that he wore on uh, the signing day or the 36-step overs he'd done in his debut with Fergie one step ahead of the game and probably the best transfer the Premiership has ever seen. Oh, that will be a debate for another day. So, Dan, a lovely uh, five-a-side you've got yourself there yet again. Always throws a keeper in there, Mush. Always throws a keeper in. He does indeed. You always need a safe pair of hands. He, he does, and uh, no safer pair of hands than Dan O'Mac. Mush, you looked at uh, the worst bits of business for us, the business that um, people really regretted doing, uh, maybe after 45 pints of wine. Who made your top five worst bits of business in this window? Yes, Steve. Always great following Dano after he throws out five brilliant pieces of business. I have to follow up with the rubbish of that summer. And uh, in at number five, he's a, he's a cockney boy. It's Scott Parker, £10 million from Charlton to Chelsea. A box-to-box hero at The Athletic. He was bought in as cover for Claude McAlele, a man that didn't need cover, and Super Frank. He was mainly used as a sub and a cup player by Tinkerman Rieri and Jose, but only one goal in 15 appearances. He looked like he was in the streets. He was just a London boy at heart, and he was to go on to play for three more London clubs. He looked like a market trader, while Chelsea traded him in only one year later. Yeah, did really well at Shorten and possibly just the big move came too soon but couldn't turn it down. But it, it wasn't really a sign in that uh, I would have looked at and thought, ah, he's, he's going to walk into that Chelsea team and do the business. He didn't have much hope with Chelsea. Then at number four is Claberson. A 6.5 million transfer fee saw the Brazil World Cup 2002 winner join United. Phil Scalari said he was the driving force behind Brazil that led to the World Cup, even though he had only started the last three games. And a Brazil side that had Cafu, Carlos, Gilberto Silva, and the three are Ronaldinho, Rivaldo, and Ronaldo. And of course, Dano's lover, Janinho. 12 appearances and only two goals in his first season. Bought in as a replacement for Veron, a long-term replacement for Roy King, but he flattered to deceive, was injured a lot, was he even a centre midfielder? As reports circulated around Sir Alex being misfed information regarding Claberson being a right-sided midfielder as the scout did not do his homework. Fergie was left missed and Cleverson was shipped on only two seasons later. If only United had seen Leeds had made an inquiry the season before, but he couldn't join because his girlfriend was only 15. <laughs> Oh, oh my God. God. It's part of this conspiracy, Dan, that the United Scouts actually scouted the wrong Cleberson. There is an article on it, and basically the scout, he's scouting Cleberson, but when he goes to scout Cleberson, Cleberson's playing right midfield for his, his club at the time in, the, in this one particular game. So the scout ends up scouting some bloke playing centre midfield. <laughs> 
<laughs> who definitely wasn't Cleverson. <laughs> who goes back and tells Ferguson, oh, you've got to sign this man. I don't know who this player is, by the way, man. You know, who knows? He's probably missed out on a big move. So, a baffling signing. And, I mean, suspicions around Cleverson having, you know, a teenage wife as well. There was a lot of stuff that came with Cleverson. Um, just an all-round awful bit of business. In at number three is Barry Ferguson. £7.5 million spent by Blackburn Rovers. He just won the treble in Scotland as captain. He'd won the Scottish PFA and the Scottish Writers Player of the Year. Scotsman Graham Souness thought Barry could repeat this in the Premiership for Blackburn, but he struggled to hold down a regular place over Tugay and Flickcroft. The following season, Souness made him captain, but then Souness was sacked. Marcuse came in. Ferguson then handed in a transfer request as he said he missed the SPL compared to the Premiership and the Lancashire Derby had no comparison to the old firm. In at number two is Helda Postiga. £7 million Spurs paid Porto for him. He had just helped Jose Mourinho win the treble with Porto, which included the UEFA Cup. He bagged in 21 goals. So Glad exiled Teddy Sheridan, Big Les and Stefan Everson from the Spurs side. He brought in Helda and Bobby Samora. Glenn Hoddle said, He is a striker with a divine quality and our supporters will enjoy watching him. They will go on to love him. Lies Glenn, one goal in one season and he was shipped back to Porto the following summer. Hoddle at the spoofing again, Dan. Glenn should have stuck with the retros. They wouldn't have let him down. Um, so, no, awful bit of business from Glenn. Out to make a name for himself by cutting off these classic players and hasn't worked out for him and won't work out for him in the season 03-04. Okay, Mosh, what is your worst bit of business of this transfer window? Yes, Steve. My worst bit of business is Adrian Mutu. £15.8 million Chelsea paid Parma as big Roman Abramovich. He got the big checkbook out. Labelled as the next Georgie Hadji, the young wide Romanian forward, tipped to follow in the bleached blonde Chelsea Dan Petrescu role. He scored in his debut, followed up by scoring in the next two games. Off to a flying start, looked promising, but he only managed two more goals in 23 more appearances. The following season, Jose arrived and Mutu had tested positive for cocaine use and he was banned for seven months. He was released by Chelsea, who took him to court. Chelsea got their money back as they took Mutu to court and Mutu had to reimburse Chelsea with the £15.2 million. And this is the largest financial penalty ever by FIFA. Big price to pay for a night out on the Ching, Dan. That's <laughs> a severe price to pay for having a good time. Um, I actually feel for Mewtwo. Um, I think it w- if it was now, he would have got a lot more support from Chelsea. Um, possibly, you know, clubs have the liaison officers and a lot more of a team behind foreign signings in order to get them settled in more. Um, whereas back then, you can't. You move over. You've all this money. You know, you should be happy. You're playing for Chelsea and all the rest. But so, but. Got a lot of time on his hands, doesn't know quite what to do. He's living in London and he ends up stuck stuck in a severe rut that cost him his Chelsea career because um, he was a very talented striker. But overall, terrible bit of business. So we will be back to cover our first game, which is Leeds United versus Newcastle United. It's a cracking game. It's a game that Dano was actually at when he was a 16-year-old. But first... 
here's a lovely little goal from the Premier League opening weekend. Amoruso, he sells Everson a die. He's way on a mazy dribble, spreads it out wide to Thompson. He sneaks away from Taylor. One, two with Matt Janssen. Striking one, a belting goal! A dipping volley gives Glenn Murray no chance. A beautiful strike from outside the box to tie in with the beautiful weather here at Ewood Park. Blackburn double the lead against you boys Wolves after only half an hour. Paul Ince, the big time Charlie, looks around as his fellow Wolves teammates. Now they understand what the Premier League's about. Blackburn 2, Wolves nil. So we are back to cover our first game. It's Leeds versus Newcastle. Dan, you didn't only take a look at it. You were at this game. Give us the breakdown. What happened between Leeds and Newcastle? Yes, Stephen, I was actually at this game. It was a super Sunday clash. The sun was out. The conditions were perfect. Bobby Robson against Peter Reid, who he had managed with with England in the 80s, all set up for a clinking game at Ellen Road. We have Bowyer and Woodgate returning to Ellen Road in Newcastle shirts, with one getting booed and one getting a warm reception. We have Le Mans Sacco making his debut, a very impressive debut as well. And lining up for uh, Leeds United was Paul Robinson in goals, a back four of Dominic Matteo, Zumana Kamara, Lucas Radibe, and Ireland legend Gary Kelly. Midfield, Jason Wilcox on the left, uh, Le Mans Sacco on the right, and a Centre midfield parent of Seth Johnson and Jody Morris. Up top, Mark Viduka and Alan Smith. For Newcastle, Shea given in goals, Andy O'Brien, Orrin Hughes, Jonathan Woodgate and Olivier Bernard at the back. The wonderful Gary Speed and Kieran Dyer in the middle of the park with Lauren Robert on the left and Lee Bowyer on the right. And up front, the dynamic duo of Craig Bellamy and Alan Shearer. Game started at a good pace. Loads of tussles and battles here with Bellamy and Dominic Matteo going at it, Alan Smith and uh, Woodgate having a tussle as well, although a respectful one given their friendship. Uh, Speed and Seth Johnson having a good ding-dong in, in the middle of the park. A couple of early chances for Kieran Dyer in particular, who starts really, really well. And he is the key to the first goal, being, being played through on goal by Lauren Robert and taken down by Paul Robinson. Penalty Newcastle and, of course, Buried by Alan Shearer. Newcastle won up after 20 minutes. So yes, Leeds won down. How could they react uh, to the home crowd on opening day after a really poor pre-season? And they reacted well in the 24th minute when a ball got stolen by Seth Johnson in the middle of the park who took the ball off Gary Speed, shifted it on to Sacco who had moved the, uh, made a lovely run from left to right. And he flicked it on to Mark Viduka, who buried first time into the bottom corner past Shea Given. 1-1. And the rest of the first half was a bit of a battle. Again, a lot of tussles on the pitch, particularly with Gary Speed having to really double up. It was like a two against one, given the advance role that Kieran Dyer was given. Leeds were well on top. Alan Smith came close with an effort from a volley going just over the bar. And Leeds went in at the break on top of Newcastle, but 1-1. Second half starts. And we have a goal in the 57th minute from Leeds. And it's a disaster of a goal. A kick out, a simple kick out from Paul Robinson. And it comes down, it bounces, comes to Olivier Bernard. He's got one option for me, and that's just to head it clear. He decides to try and head it back to Shea Given. Alan Smith sneaks in behind him. And a lovely finish, nutmeg and Shea Given on the way. Ellen Road erupting. This is the type of start of the season they needed, considering what was uh, unfolding behind the scenes. Could they hang on to get the three points? 
Newcastle begin chasing the game. Bobby Robson, as brave as ever, makes a double substitution. And it's a young Jermaine Genus and Shola Amiobi coming on for Olivia Bernard, moving Gary Speed, the left-back, and Lee Bowyer, who gets absolutely abused coming off the pitch by the Ellen Road faithful. They do not like the way Lee Bowyer left the club and what things he had said since. But anyway, Newcastle are now in a 4-3-3 with Bellamy uh, moving out wide with Robert and Shearer and Amiobi directly through the middle. They are going for it and their pressure continues for the last 15 minutes and they get their rewards at the end. And it's really at the fault of Leeds, should have been dealt with. A great ball in by Orange Hughes nonetheless. And the flick on by Domi, Leeds left back on the day, filling in for the injured uh, Ian Hart. He goes to volley the ball clear. He slices it. And who's behind him? Alan Shearer to poke it home. And I mean poke it home. He has to slide and stretch. It comes off his big toe. 2-2. The game finishes. A fantastic opener for Super Sunday. All in all, Peter Reid and Bobby Robson look, looks very happy. Um, not only to see each other, but both to take a share of the spoils. On this showing, you would think that Leeds would go on to have a very good season and Newcastle would be, go on to make a bit of a title challenge. But all in all, an excellent opening weekend game for the 03-04 season. Dan, you were actually at this game in the stands at Ellen Road. Were you in with the Leeds fans or with the Geordies? We were actually in with the Leeds fans on the day and I'm quite glad that we are. We came across, I wouldn't call them riots, but there was fights between the Newcastle and Leeds fans both before and after the game. It was a pretty rowdy atmosphere. Um, Woodgate, Woodgate and Bowie are really, really adding to the game as well in terms of behind the scenes. And uh, it was a mighty game for a young man to be at and um, the 2-2 class. That's what you want. You want goals when you see games and some of the players on show thought Kieran Dyer was unbelievable um, to watch live. He's so quick. Um, uh-huh. And uh, Viduka and Shearer, just quality strikers. It, f- it felt like, particularly in the lineups and the atmosphere you're describing, this was like an old school Premier League game. You know, was it a physical battle on the pitch too? Was there f- targets flying in everywhere? It had Johnson and Jody Morris and David Batty comes on for Leeds as well. And then you've Gary Speed on the other side. And of course, he has a, a, a real positive history with Leeds, you know. Um, and you've got you've Shear, obviously uh, an old war horse, and uh, I some real retros on show as well as some emerging young talent. I mentioned Kieran Dyer, but Craig Bellamy as well. Oh, brilliant player! Alan Smith, really, really impressive for Leeds as well. And uh, I really, really good game, very, very enjoyable. Was it apparent to you? Obviously, Leeds have been in free fall here since really the last year or two when they're selling off all their best players. Was it apparent to you that this Leeds team, you know, were going to go down, that they were going to struggle? Or Well, they were poor at the back. Now, that's what I would say. They were poor at the back and, and losing Woodgate and Ferdinand, that they, weren't, they couldn't afford to replace them, basically. So, they were, there were, was gaps in their back four. But they did have Smith and Viduka, you know? Mm-hmm. Will Cox was a good player, but just, they had steady players rather than the quality that they had previously. You know, the players they sold just weren't replaced and as simple as that. And it was only a matter of time, obviously then, before Smith and Viduka would become the next next players to leave. Um, but on the day, as you're asking, Stephen, I would not have thought Leeds would go on to get relegated. Not a mission. Mosh, you love uh, car boot sale. Um, if you were a manager here in the Premier League, who would you be dipping into get out of the, the Leeds bargain bin at this stage? 
Uh, depending on who wore, what club was that, Steve? I think you're looking at Viduka, big goal scorer. I would stay away from Seth Johnson and Jody Morris. Batty could do a job, Bradaby for a season, uh, again, depending on which club. Alan Smith, as we know, got the big move to United, maybe a move too big for him. Uh, I have my question marks over Sacco. Don't know who the hell is he, but definitely if I was going to buy someone, it would be Viduka. Now it's the time where Mosh delves into the life of another insane, passionate lunatic on the pitch. It's Mosh's Madman of the Week. He's mad he is. No, actually, he's all right. My madman of the week is none other than the Welsh dragon, Craig Bellamy. A controversial character, to say the least. Sir Bobby Robson, a man who managed many a player, said Bellamy was the gobbiest player he ever had. While on trial at Norwich, he broke the arm of a goalkeeper at the training ground. Mike Phelan, who at the time was his youth coach, a man who wore shorts on Christmas Day, seen something in him, and he offered him a contract for Norwich Reserves. He made his debut at the age of 19 for Norwich in the old Division 1, got his first red card at the age of 19. Started out as a centre midfield, but Arsenal legend Bruce Rioch seen him as a forward, where he would play the rest of his career in that position. His form for Norwich caught the eye of Gordon Strachan and Coventry. A six million bid was accepted to the disgruntled face of Bellamy. He didn't fancy a trip up to Highfield Road. Bellamy at the time, he didn't have an agent. His financial advisor had recently met with none other than crazy gang member, John Fashionu. So his advisor rang gladiator presenter, Big Fash for advice regarding Bellamy. When Bellamy arrived to meet Strachan and signed terms for Coventry, who showed up for the meeting unannounced? None other than Big Fash. They filled Bellamy with false promises. Big awooga. Bellamy would then go on to sign for Newcastle. And my God, what a start he got off to there. He was sent off for swinging an arm at Ashley Cole. He was sent home from a winter training camp after missing a meal along with Kieran Dyer, Andy Griffin and Big Carl Court. A police caution a few months later was chucked out of court as he was alleged of kicking a female who he chucked out of Kieran Dyer's car as they were on the pull in Newcastle City Centre. Bellamy in Europe for Newcastle, he was given a three-game ban after headbutting a Dynamo Kiev player on his Champions League debut. He also would gain the fastest red card in Champions League history for swinging an arm at Marco Materazzi. Materazzi had niggled him and pinched him, three-game ban for Bellamy. In March 2004, word on the street is he threw a chair at coach John Carver. You know, that fella looked a wee bit like Sam Allardyce, all over Bellamy taking Carver's parking space. Bellamy then refused to travel with the Newcastle side to the UEFA Cup tie against Real Mallorca, but Sir Bobby Robson worked his charm and convinced Bellamy to travel. The start of the 4 season, Patrick Clivert arrived. Close friend Gary Speed was sold Why? and Sir Bobby Robson was sacked. Bellamy was not happy, and who steps in? Hardmouth strict Scott Graham Souness. Bellamy and Souness, a cocktail for disaster. 
The pair clashed on many occasions, a public spat when Bellamy was subbed in a game caught on camera, Bellamy swearing at Souness. Bellamy then clashed with Newcastle legend Alan Shearer. Bellamy said this about Alan Shearer. Your legs are gone, you're too slow, you're too old, you couldn't even kiss my ass, effing goody two-shoes. Birmingham came in with a six million bid for him. This was accepted, but also Celtic came in with a loan offer. Bellamy opted to travel up to, up to Scotland and play for Celtic, a rival of one of Souness's former clubs. He played for Rangers. Was this a dig at Souness? A permanent deal was never on the cards as Celtic would not cough up the coin. A bid was accepted from Everton and Blackburn and Bellamy chose Rovers as they were managed by Sparky Hughes, his former manager at Wales. He chose Hughes rather than Moyes as he said Moyes was hostile and tense. Blackburn was the best club and fit for Bellamy at the time and this is probably where he spent his best years as he reached double figures with goals in both seasons and he was voted their player of the year. Hughes was able to saddle Bellamy and get the best out of him. But then Liverpool triggered a six million release clause in Bellamy and Liverpool fan Bellamy said it was a no-brainer and he signed on the dotted line. An ongoing court case over alleged assault had overshadowed the start of his time playing under Rafa Benitez, a.k.a. the Spanish waiter. Good form at the first half of the season. Bellamy was not showing signs of any bad behaviour. Then a trip to Portugal before Liverpool played Barcelona at the new camp in Champions League. Bellamy and Risa got into a boozed and fused argument on a night out. Bellamy, filled with grandpa's cough medicine, kept chipping on Risa's shoulder. Sing for me, sing for me, as Risa was supposedly the karaoke king. This argument spilled into the hotel and Bellamy entered Risa's hotel room. The Norwegian was out for the count. And Bellamy entered with a golf club in hand and Bellamy said he just whacked him across the buttocks a wee bit. Risa later came out and said Bellamy took several swings. He thought he was happy Gilmore. Bellamy apologised the next morning, but he was fined two weeks wages. This gave Bellamy the name from the English press, the nutter with the putter. Bellamy would score a vital away goal in that tie against Barcelona and his celebration was him doing a golf swing. An unused sub in the Champions League final, Bellamy was told on the flight home by the Spanish waiter he was free to sign for another club. So West Ham signed him. His time at West Ham was interrupted by continuous injuries, but they accepted a 14 million bid for him from Manchester City. Bellamy was reunited with good friend Mark Hughes. Bellamy didn't get on with the Brazilian clique of Alano and Rubinho at the Etihad, and they clashed on numerous occasions at the training ground. He had a standout performance in the Manchester Derby where he bagged two beautiful goals. But on the final whistle of that game, a fan invaded the pitch and words were exchanged between him and Bellamy. But Bellamy pushed the feisty fan away in the face. Hughes was sacked shortly after. Enter Roberto Mancini. And of course, Bellamy and Italian didn't see eye to eye. Bellamy was then loaned out to hometown club Cardiff City. He helped Cardiff reach the playoffs. Bellamy wanted to stay at Cardiff, but City priced him out of a move. He then hooked up for his second spell at Liverpool under King Kenny. He was mainly used as a squad player and a cup player. His final move in his career was back to hometown club Cardiff City, where he helped them win the championship and gain promotion to the Premier League, which was always a dream for him. So this ended Craig Bellamy's career. 
455 appearances, 135 goals, 78 caps for Wales and 19 goals, and also five appearances for Team GB and a goal for them. His honours included a Scottish Cup success with Celtic in 05, a League Cup with Liverpool in 2012, a part of the Liverpool side that reached the Champions League final in 07, Welsh Player of the Year in 07. He also won the PFA Young Player of the Year in 2002, beating off competition from John Turry, Stephen Gerrard, Ledley King, Darius Vassell and Michael Ricketts. Bellamy played for a total of nine clubs and accumulated over £47 million in transfer fees. He also suffered a lot of off-the-field issues and most recently he came out in 2020 and admitted that he suffered from depression during his playing days. He now currently is the under-21 manager of Anderlecht. Craig also chips in with punditry work and does a lot of work for charity. A great player, an absolute character and a madman. Craig Bellamy, my madman of the week. Okay, listener. So that was a great madman there by Mush. For those listeners that don't know, myself and uh, Dan are actually related. I know you're probably thinking, Irish, you're all related. But we are first cousins. And um, back in the day, at our uncle's wedding, there was a Celtic convention going on in uh, the hotel that the wedding was taking place at. So a number of the Celtic players were there. One of those players was the madman of the week, Craig Bellamy. Now, I have quite a hazy memory of the night that followed. You know, the wedding was in full flow at this stage, but the Celtic players did grace us with their presence at the private bar uh, at one point during the wedding. And I can remember clearly turning around and Dan being at the bar with Craig Bellamy having a drink. Now, Dan, I want to know what went down during that exchange. What went down was I was actually speaking to uh, Craig Bellamy and a couple of Celtic players, and they were all in great form. They were over at the hotel for a golf weekend, um, if you remember, Stephen. And uh, I seem to remember you following uh, Alan Thompson about the place for some reason, maybe because you're both late-footed, but <laughs> however. Uh, so I found myself speaking to a few of the Celtic players, which was, which was a great buzz at the time. We were only young men. And I bought Craig Bellamy a pint. And when I went to hand him the pint, he said he didn't want it because he had had he had three in front of him. I think everyone was buying him a blooming pint. So I didn't know what to do with this pint because it was a pint of Guinness. I didn't drink it at the time. I was too too young and small for it. Uh, so I turned around and there was Jackie McNamara. So I let on that I had bought Jackie the pint and he took it and he was delighted. So <laughs> something good came of the pint that Craig didn't want. But no, the Celtic players were all, uh, I have to say, they were getting tortured really, weren't they? And But they handled it really well and they were all, they were all there for a good jolly up themselves. So uh, it yeah. was unbelievable, really, when you look back, all, all well, those Celtic players. It was, it was so good to have them all there. Um, but yeah, I just have this memory of like, what is Dan doing at the bar with Craig Bellamy? Uh, at, the same, ugly. at the same time, I think I was talking to Chris Sutton about his Premier League winner's medal in 95. And then I looked over to the other <laughs> side of the bar and Sean Maloney was drinking a blue wicket. And I was like, well, this wedding is getting out of hand. <laughs> it was, oh, good. it's good to look back on that. That was good, Craig. We will be back with our Euro match of the week. Straight after this wonderful goal from the opening weekend of the 2003-2004 Premier League season. Marlette gets a crossing. Saha, he's went for an overhead kick, but he's completely misjudged it. I think he's broke his tailbone. It's felt Imamoto kindly in the box. Imamoto with the shot. Saha, goal! What a recovery by the French bionic man as he's there to guide the ball in. Saha wiggled his wee finger at the Craven Cottage crowd. 
Mark Swarter gives Southgate the look of he was sleeping. Ibamoto strike me. I've got a huge slice of luck deflecting off the Champions League winner Jonathan Greeding. Doesn't matter though. Fulham won't mind. They lead 2-1 here at the cottage. Yes, this week's foreign fair comes in the shape of La Liga and it is Real Madrid versus Real Betis in the opening weekend of the La Liga season 2003-2004. This was the real birth of the Galacticos and Dan took a closer look at Beckham, Ronaldo, Zidane and the rest of the superstars on show. Dan, what happened at the Bernabeu? Yes, Stephen, thank you. Uh, a wonderful occasion at the Bernabeu for opening day. David Beckham's debut. The sun was splitting stones in Spain. Betis had arrived to spoil the party and they lined up in a 4-2-3-1 with Contreras and goals Varela, Juanito, Lembo and Mingo at the back. A midfield two of Arzu and Asuncao, who they signed from Roma. Uh, Joaquin on the right, he would go on to have a 35-year career. Capi in the hole with Lopez off the left. And up top, the famous championship manager, 0102 legend, Martin Palermo, most famous for missing three penalties in one game for Argentina. Real Madrid would go gung-ho with Iker Casillas in the bags. A back four of Salgado, Helguera, Raul Bravo, nephew of Johnny, Roberto Carlos left back. In midfield, we have a diamond of Cambiasso coming in for Macalele, who just recently signed for Chelsea. Beckham off the right, Figo off the left, Zidane at the top of the diamond and a front two of Raul and Ronaldo. Unbelievable stuff. The game itself gets off to a flyer when after two minutes, the Bernabeu are ups and they have their new fan favourite when a Flowing move, started by Zidane, taking the hand out of a few midfielders. Feeds Ronaldo down the left. He plays a lovely Ronaldo. He beats two men. He plays a lovely one-two with Raul. Whips a wee ball around the back post. And who's at the back post? It's the debut boy, David Beckham. Pokes it home. He's got the long blonde hair. He's got the short sleeve jersey. He's got the Adidas Predators. And now he's got his debut goal. And he's looking great. Real Madrid are 1-0 up. The rest of the first half, a little bit scatty. Madrid, of course, a little bit dodgy at the back back then, you know, compensating for all this attacking talent that just didn't quite have the funds to get a good back four together, particularly a centre-back um, with Campo and Hero, uh, Carranca, all not having been replaced yet. And Real Betis are let back into the game when Joaquin, on 34 minutes, whips in a corner and it's met by centre-back Juanito, who he- uh, beats Helguer in the air and heads past Casillas. 1-1 at the break. And a lot to do for Madrid in the first half. Of course, Real Madrid are always under pressure. Second half, Madrid really come to the fore in the second half with Zidane starting to dominate. Beckham and Figo getting wider. Raul drops a little bit deeper, leaving Ronaldo as a lone front, front man. So they become more attacking and more compact with Raul dropping in and opening up that free space. Zidane has the run of the pitch here. And on 62 minutes, he beats a few men out left and whips a lovely ball in for R9 Ronaldo to finish and put Real Madrid 2-1 up. After this, Real Madrid, they kind of drop off. I don't know if it's because opening game. Joaquin denied twice by Casillas. Uh, Helguera, his legs are starting to show. Um, he definitely, at this Stage needed a, a quick partner beside him and at the end of the game finishes 2-1 and 
Real Madrid just happy to get off the pitch of field, although at the end of the day, they've got the three points. Beckham's off to a great start. Carlos Quiroz is off to a great start as manager. And Betis can leave saying they gave a good account of themselves and can look forward to a good season. But all about the Galacticos on the day, and you just rhyme those names off. Beckham, Figo, Zidane, Raul, Ronaldo, Carlos. Household names all over the place. They get the three points and they go top of the Liga on the first weekend. Great stuff, Dan. You know, looking through those host of names there, um, I mean, how they afforded them all, I'll never know. The real question I have here is, this group, obviously, Real Madrid had won the, the league the, the year before this, but this group of players, including Beckham and Ronaldo, the actual team that were called the Galacticos, never won a La Liga title. Why do you think that is? The defence, 100%, yeah. cost them. They couldn't have needed to sell Magalelli. No. They could, they could not have needed to do that. Real Madrid, we're talking about, they could have you know, sold a couple of squad players. Selling Magalelli was a huge mistake. And as I touched in, on, in the match report, Raul Bravo beside um, Helguera probably need to find that Galactico centre-half if they can get their hands on one. Yeah, I'd just like to add that Real Madrid actually provided some uh, half-time entertainment before the start of the second half this day when a streaker ran onto the pitch wearing a black wig. I can't make out what's written on his chest, but some form of writing. And it took seven security men to chase him off the pitch. A little bit of half-time entertainment with the Galacticos. Maybe they're trying to go down the NBA route with cheerleaders. They get it badly wrong by hiring a streaker. But great stuff. A black wig, Dan, uh, running very quickly, hard to catch. Was this a streaker or was this Ryan Giggs with no clothes on? It might have been Ryan Giggs on the rip in Madrid for the weekend. Come to oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, good stuff. More, more on that later on. Bulls against the Bulls. This week's Balls Against the Wall quiz is sponsored by the ball David Dunn. Slots past Casey Keller from the penalty spot in Birmingham's opening 2003-2004 win against Tottenham Hotspur. You can no longer see this ball. However, Casey Keller has a fine collection of American footballs available for viewing through his eBay account with the handle butter under slash fingers at Casey. Yes, welcome to the Balls Against the Wall quiz. The quiz where I pit Dan against Mush to see who has the best football knowledge. This week, all the questions will be about the season 03-04. Lads, I need your player buzzers and the player buzzers this week or any player transferred in the 2003 summer transfer window. Dan, what is your player buzzer? Roque Jr. And Mush, what about you? What is your player buzzer? Jumba Jumba! So good, they named him twice. Okay, a fine pair of player buzzers there, lads. <laughs> we are overjoyed to have the main man back. It's Ua Cantona keeping the scores. Hello, Eric. Well, Eric, what did you get up to at the weekend? I am Cantona. Ah, lovely stuff, Eric. Great to hear. Dan is 3-0 up in the series. Mush needs a big win here to get back on the board. This week, the prize is the number two single from the charts in that week. And this is a single that Dan used to sing at the junior discos in 2003. Who am I kidding? It was at the back of a nightclub. It's Pretty Green Eyes by Ultrabeat. I'm going to need that track. I'm going to need that track today. <laughs> what a tune. Lads, as ever, you will know when the quiz is over when you hear this noise. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Question one. David Seaman signed for which club on a free from Arsenal? Jumper, jumper! 
Yes, Mush. Man City. Correct. Who sponsored Tottenham Hotspur's kit for that season? Okay, Junior. Yes, Dan. Thompson's. Correct. What colour was the Villa away kit? Okay, Junior. Yes, Dan. It was yellow. Correct. Which Pompey veteran striker won Player of the Month for August? Okay, Jumper, Junior. Jumper. Dan. Teddy Sheringham. Correct. Glenn Johnson played for what club this year? Jumper, Jumper. Yes, Mush. Chelsea. Correct. Oh, what a shout. Who was Manchester City manager? Okay, Junior. Yes, Dan. Kevin Keegan. He was correct. Who was City's captain? Jamba Jamba. Yes, Mush. Bob Richard Dunn. Incorrect. Dan. Claudio Reyna. Incorrect. It was Sylvan Distan. Oh! Dustbin! Which tasty snack sponsored Wolverhampton's kit? Jamba Jamba. Yes, Mush. Doritos. I'm wearing it. (laughs) Where did Charlton play their home games? Jumba Jumba! Yes, Mush. The Valley! Correct. What sports brand made Charlton's kits? Okay, Jumba Jumba! Yes, Dan. Lee Cox Sportif? Incorrect, Mush. That's what I was going to go for. Ah, jeez. Umbro. Incorrect. It was Joma. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Oh, we are out of time. That was a really tight one. Let's go over to Ua with the scores. What are the scores, Eric? Daniel. Catra. Conner. Catra. Oh, it's a draw. It's 4 4. Oh, oh my God. Which means, lads, uh, it's sudden death. That's right. It's a sudden death. Fight to the end. Oh, no. And I'm going to give you a category, and you're going to answer one at a time. And the person <laughs> who doesn't get an answer right is out, and the other person will go home with pretty green eyes. The category this week is the Chelsea squad from 2003-2004. So we are looking for any player who was a oh member of the first team squad at Chelsea. Dan, as defending champion, you get to go first. Carlo Gudicini. Correct. Super Frank Lampard. Correct. John Terry. Correct. Wayne Bridge. Correct. Glenn Johnson. Correct. Claude McAlele. Correct. Marcel Desailly. Correct. Adrian Moutou. Correct. William Gallas. Correct. Herman Crespo. Correct. Juan Veron. Correct. Scott Parker. He was in there. Correct. Joe Cole. Yes. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Yes. Damien Duff. The Duff man was in there. Yes. A. Oh, the Danish. A. Gronkier, the Danish winger. Yes. Eider Good Johnson. Yes. Alex Smearton. Mush, it is incorrect. He was bought by Chelsea, but immediately loaned out to Portsmouth. So he was not part of the Chelsea first team squad for that season. Oh, so unlucky. 
uh, a great shout, but technicality means that Dan is 4-0 up in the series and takes home pretty green eyes, which he will be delighted with. It's match of the week! Bloody hell! Hello and welcome to Match of the Week. Yes, Mush, the matchman is live at Fratton Park. Mush, what has happened? Yes, Steve, you boys, Portsmouth, have started their Premier League debut with a win over Aston Villa, thanks to young man Teddy Sheridan and Patrick Double Cheeseburger with the goals either side of halftime. Harry Redknapp wearing a shirt and tie that your uncle would wear at a wedding celebrates with the bald eagle, Jim Smith while David O'Leary sporting a polo t-shirt that he would wear at golf with Packy Bonner. He slumps back into the changing room, wondering, will he ever get the image of Peter Ridsdale and his checkbook out of his head? What is the task that lies ahead for him and Aston Villa? Fratton Park breaks into a chorus of playoff poppy, led by Portsmouth diehard fan John Westwood. You may be asking yourself, who the hell is Mr. Westwood? Well, he's the die-hard Poppy fan who wears a big hat that Jamiroquai would be proud of. And he has a long blue wig and rings a bell as if he's calling the cast of Oliver in for dinner. Harry, a man who would be very shy in the transfer market, signed no fewer than 12 players. He treated the transfer market like a pick mix in the cinema. And he went in and filled his bag with 10 different nationalities Eight frees, two loans, and only two transfer fees. Harry, give five of these new boys a first start in the basking sun on the south coast. Per Steve Stone, I hope he puts some sun cream on that wee forehead. O'Leary, a man who treats transfer market like an overpriced steakhouse. He only brought in goalkeeper Thomas, I'm no big goalie, Sorensen, and Grant, I look a wee bit like Gary McAllister McCann. Both men were thrown into the lion's den at Fratton Park. A first half at saw Villa show the premiership experience, putting Pompey under pressure, especially from set pieces early on. New boy McCann was in the walls after a clash of heads with Abdullah Fay. A bloody McCann needed five stitches. Gone are the days of the magic sponge, says I. He returned to foul Teddy Sheringham and was booked. Swede Marcus Elbach had a goal chalked off for Villa after Alpi fouled on the build-up. Alpi then had a food and drink chance moments later as he found himself unmarked eight yards out. He sent a stooping header wide when he should have placed it past the Trinidad Rumman Shaka Hislop. Ooh, ah, Paul McGrath has just thrown his tinner side owner at the TV. Alpi still living off the fact that Turkey finished third at the 2002 World Cup. Abduan Pai, that big panther in midfield, was then booked for chopping down Lee Hendry a man who I thought was in pop band A1. All Villa's pressure was to slap them in the face like a fresh fish caught on the docks of Southampton. As old Teddy Teddy came to the show, he had an effort from outside the box that trickled just wide to the relief of the pinball Ronnie Johnson. But if this wasn't a warning sign, the minutes later, they were stunned as Jakubu, the African Benjamin Button, mazed into the box. He roasted Alpine, not the cereal. Was this a shot of a man in his 20s or was it a shot of a man in his mid-40s? Pompey didn't care as Solison could only palm away the effort and who was there but golden oldie Teddy to tap it in? 1-0 Pompey, the first goal of the Premier League. Halftime, 1-0 Portsmouth. The second half started off with Pompey having to dig deep. 
The home rearguard, which included Dezeu, Fox, Zerkovic and Zestanovic, withstood a brief and timid Villa response, who withdrew Whittingham for the hammer Hitzelsberger to try and add some German efficiency. Shortly after the hour mark, a ball into the box was controlled by Benjamin Yakubu Button. On the chest, he laid off to none other than Patrick Double Cheeseburger on the onions to finish it beautifully into the net. Flashbacks of Euro 96. 2-0 Portsmouth. O'Leary rolled the dice and he threw on a young giraffe in Peter Crouch, but he was sniffed out by the dolly mixture backline of Portsmouth. There was hope for Villa in the 83rd minute as Villa captain Gareth Barry sporting a shaved head look. Was he a hard man or did he get nits during the summer of Juan Pablo Angel? Barry was fired by Pompey new boy Zerkovic. Barry scored the resulting penalty. Was it to be late drama at Fracton? No, Steve Stone had another idea. Any chance Villa had was ended as hard man wannabe Barry was sent off for foul and abusive language at the fourth official. The final whistle sounded. Pompey of three points. Harry has a smirk on his face, which he sports on deadline day when he's hanging out of a car window. Teddy Sheridan can still do a job. Steve Stone is badly sunburned. And is Yakubu 46? David O'Leary looks like he's seen the ghost of Peter Ridsdale. Alpi is a liability. Angel has crisp and dry hair. And where the hell was Dion Dublin? It's finished, dear Steve. Portsmouth 2, Aston Villa 1. Back to you in the studio. What a match at Fratton Park. Someone, please, if you can see or hear much the match man at Fratton Park, get that man some water and check his heart rate. Great stuff, Mush. Ooh, I'm absolutely knackered after that. Dan, this Pompey side, the Premier League virgins, of course, uh, ran by Harry Redknapp and Milan Mandric. Harry... <laughs> Harry has a reputation of being a wheeler dealer, but really he doesn't like being called a wheeler dealer. We sort of see that term with more admiration and his signings for Portsmouth that he that he got on board this season. Fantastic, really setting the stall out uh, for Portsmouth's survival. Oh, absolutely. And he'd done a really good job. And look, he did do a bit of wheeling dealing. As, as you say, it's an endearing term from our point of view. Um, to get them promoted, he, he signed Paul Merson. You know, attracted him to Portsmouth and, and he helped get them promoted. And then, you know, Harry could be ruthless as well. He didn't offer Merson that extra year, despite uh, being the main driving force behind them getting promoted on the pitch. He released Merson and he signed guys like uh, Teddy Sheringham, which was a great bit of business from uh, Tottenham Hotspurs on a free Patrick Berger, as we've mentioned earlier. And um, he had found guys like Yakubu, you know, really, really... Good scouts, I would suggest, that Harry had. Good contacts. Was able to build a squad always in a quick amount of time. I always think he always got squads together very, very quickly. Knew exactly the type of characters and players that he wanted. And Portsmouth would go on to um, survive comfortably, although sweating up until around the Easter period where they get a great couple of wins. I remember Steve Stone scoring the winning goal. Uh, at Fratton Park against Manchester United, for example, three points that they may have thought they weren't going to get uh, earlier on in the season. So, Portsmouth, they were good to watch under Harry. And he signed some really, really good players. And he had a good relationship with Milan Mandrich at the time. And, uh, no, Portsmouth did a good job. They were a, a breath of fresh air to the Premier League. You know, Fratton Park, such a brilliant, old, vintage English football stadium. 
it's quite sad now to see where they are in League One, although they're they're always kicking about the top of League One and, and challenging to get back into the Championship. It is sad. They went gung-ho um, to win a cup. They won the, obviously, they win the AFA Cup further down the line. And then, of course, the big clubs come knocking again for their players and it goes back to the recruitment. They didn't, they didn't have the financials to replace those players that they sold. And like a lot of clubs, when they go down from the Premier League, it's very hard to get back up there and Coventry, Notch Forest, uh, Sheffield Wednesday, Barnsley, Portsmouth, so, so many examples. And Purell Pompey were just another example of that. There's a great wee moment at the start of Premier League years, 2003, 2004 in Sky, where they cut to Fratton Park. And it's such an old stadium that they haven't really prepared for having like pundits in there or any sort of media whatsoever. And Andy Gray is having to climb up a ladder, right, to get into the commentary box with Martin Tyler. And I can only describe it to you as, do you remember the old Batman TV show with Adam West? Do you remember when they used to have to climb up the side of a building? But it, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that's exactly what Andy Gray had to do to get into the commentary box at Fratton Park. <laughs> is that why Andy Gray doesn't dance anymore? It could be, much. <laughs> Okay, Mush, you have just about recovered from that brilliant opener at Fratton Park. And now it's time for the rest of the weekend's Premier League results. Yes, Steve, thank you. The rest of the scores from the opening weekend of the 2003-2004 season. Birmingham City 1, Tottenham Hotspur 0, David Dunn with a penalty. Arsenal 2, Everton 1. Hey, Bobby, what's French for va-va-voom? Thierry Henry with a penalty. Tartanian Robert Perez. Well, Thomas Trusinski got a consolation for Everton. Solman Campbell was red-carded, along with Lee Tai for Everton. Blackburn Rovers, five. Wolverhampton Wanderers, one. Lorenzo Amoruso, Thompson, Brett Emerton. Gold King Cole with a brace. Stephen Everson with the Wolverhampton Wanderers goal. Fulham, three. Middlesbrough, two. Steve Marlette. Imamoto and Saha with the goals for Fulham, while Middlesbrough's goals were scored by Marinelli and Nemeth. Leicester City 2, Southampton 2. Paul Dickoff with the pen and Big Les Ferdinand with the other goal. Southampton's goals were scored by Kevin Phillips and James Beattie. Manchester United 4, Bolton Wanderers 0. Rodri, I mean Ryan Giggs with the brace, Paul's goals and Ruud van Nistrooy with the other goals. Charlton Athletic 0, Manchester City 3. Nicholas Anelka with a penalty, Antonio Sibieski and Song Ji Hai with the goals. Mark Fish was sent off for Charlton. And finally, Liverpool 1, Chelsea 2, Juan Sebastian Veron with the goal and Jimmy Floyd Robberbank separated in between by a penalty from Michael Owen. That concludes the scores from the opening weekend of the 2003-2004 season. This week's Maverick of the Week is the left-footed wizard Patrick Berger, who played for three Premier League clubs. His early career, he started off with Sparta Prague. Then he moved to Slavia Prague, big rivals, after two years in the Sparta youth setup. He would go on to play a number of first-team games for Slavia Prague, doing very well and earning himself a move to Germany when he signed for Otmar Hitzfeld's Borussia Dortmund for the 
bargain price of £500,000. Surprisingly, to a lot of our listeners now, when you hear this one, Otmar Hisfeld used Patrick as a deep-lying midfielder. He sat in front of the back four for Dortmund for two seasons, making a number uh, of appearances and helping them win a Bundesliga as well as a German Super Cup. Moving on to Euro 96, he was a key member of the Czech Republic squad that reached the final, losing out to Germany 2-1. Patrick himself actually scored from the spot to give Czech Republic the lead. He had such a good tournament that he attracted interest from a number of clubs across Europe. Most importantly for Patrick, Liverpool came his way. When Liverpool made moves for both Patrick and his Czech Republic teammate Karl Poborski. Poborski, of course, choosing Manchester United over Liverpool. Patrick chose Liverpool. And I think we can safely say that Roy Evans got the best uh, piece of business regarding the Czech Republic squad, with Poborski not doing well at Manchester United, but Berger doing really well at Liverpool. He got off to a great start with Liverpool, winning the September Player of the Month award, scoring a hat-trick against Chelsea. He scored against Manchester United in 2000. He would have a great first season with Liverpool. His second season, not so much when he had a fallout with Roy Evans, when he refused to come on as a sub. Him and Evans would go on to have a number of clashes throughout 97-98. It was only when Evans was uh, sacked after being made joint manager with uh, the great Gerard Houllier that Houllier gave Berger a new lease of life. He would play a number of games for Houllier and was a key part of Liverpool's treble-winning cup team of 2000-2001. Injuries would reduce his appearances, but any time he played, he really did impress. And he was a key part of Julier's team, which was a solid midfield that offered Patrick a bit of creativity playing alongside Haman, Gerrard and McAllister, Danny Murphy. So Berger was really the winger. He was released in 2003 from Liverpool due to injuries. And I often wonder if he hadn't have injuries, would he have been able to hang on and only two seasons later be part of Rafa Benitez's Champions League winning squad. So a little bit unfortunate with Liverpool as well. He would move on to Portsmouth, Harry Redknapp, picking him up on a free transfer, of course. And he would have a great spell with Portsmouth, impressing over two seasons, scoring cracking goals. I always remember his volley against Charlton in 2004-2005, which was one of the goals of the season. He impressed so much that David O'Leary came knocking and enticed him to Aston Villa. Patrick insisting that the reason he moved to Aston Villa was because David O'Leary was in charge. He had, uh, again, an injury rabbit spell with Aston Villa and was loaned out to Stoke before coming back and impressing under Martin O'Neill in his, his spell and early days with Aston Villa. They would both come to an agreement at the end of his contract to let Patrick leave, despite O'Neill's attempts to keep him there. Patrick wanted to move back to Sparta Prague and retire there, and he retired in the summer of 2010, having had a fantastic career despite his injuries. His club appearance totaled at 460 with 83 goals. Brilliant uh, record for a winger. For his nation, 42 caps. I was surprised to see that. But 18 goals in those 42 caps. You often wonder, he would have played another couple of major tournaments and really would have helped the Czech Republic team filled with talent at the time. Nedved, uh, Rizicki, Poborski, to name a few. His honours included a Bundesliga, German Super Cup, FA Cup, Geordie Shield, UEFA Cup and League Cup in England. Now he can be seen regularly playing amateur football in the sixth tier of the Czech Republic well into his 40s and regularly takes part in Legends games and competitions. These are the type of things that really 
uh, make him a maverick for me, like so many of our other mavericks before. They're still in love with the game itself. He had a wand of a left foot. He was a scorer of great goals. He will be well remembered and thought of at all the clubs that he played for. And to boot, just as an initial thing, he was absolutely gorgeous. Patrick Berger is my maverick of the week. A wand of a left foot, as I've said before. And a really good career. And uh, I have good memories of Patrick Berger. Feel like you're not in love with Patrick Berger, but you would, wouldn't would mind taking a little bite of the burger. Yes, I would go on a date with Patrick, Stephen. That's very good there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you watch Premier League years 1996-97, they do a little piece on Patrick Berger. And it's uh, the song in the background is Because you're gorgeous <laughs> And Patrick Berger running about in his cream little pool kit Scoring a few goals And the women uh, support, female supporters and male supporters of Liverpool Sort of just crooning over him You know, it's a funny piece on the Premier League years, 96-97 But look, he was a re- really good footballer as well Big Brucey's bedtime bath Nice and warm, full of suds, a scented candle, a rubber duck. In the bath, Brucey don't give a dreams of houses to be. Dreams of houses to be. All right, Dan, I'm ready. I've got the story ready. Can you just check that Brucey's ready in his bath? Brucey, you're already in there. I haven't even added the cold water. You must be roasted in that bath tonight. Let me get a bit of cold in there for you. Oh, I've got the Johnson's no tear for you this week too, Brucey, after after what happened with our last bath. God love you. Felt sorry for you. Now, remember, get a good scrub, a good wash, get the muscles nice and relaxed because tomorrow morning you've got a dance lesson with Robbie Savage. And I know you're looking forward to that very much. Get a nice relaxing bath and I'll see you in the morning, Brucey. So this week's story comes from your good friend and fellow football manager, Arsene Wenger, and his autobiography, My Life in Red and White. At the start of the 2003-2004 season, I repeated to the players what I had declared earlier. They could win the title without losing. I believed in it. And it was our goal. I remember every single player in that exceptional team. Obviously, everyone remembers the stars, the players who were the linchpins, Patrick Vieira, Gilberto Silva, Ray Parler, Freddie Youngberg, Robert Perez, Dennis Bergkamp, Thierry Henry, Lauren, Jens Lehmann and Ashley Cole, who had been at the academy since he was 11 and debuted with me at Arsenal. There were also two defenders who were fundamentally important. Sol Campbell arrived at Arsenal in 2001. He had been a mainstay at our North London rivals Tottenham, where his contract with the club was about to expire. No one could have imagined for a single second that he would come to us. To prepare for his arrival and to discuss conditions, we used to meet at David Dean's house at around 11 o'clock at night and walk around the neighbourhood, talking until midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. Only David, Sol, his agent Sky Andrew and I knew what was going on. We were gauging the impact it would have. When I called a press conference to announce the arrival of a new player and Sol Campbell walked into the room full of journalists, it was a bombshell. 
Joining us after so many years at Spurs was an outstanding act of courage. And what we feared, knowing the supporters, their passion, their fury, came to pass. They often had a difficult life in London, having to deal with banners calling him a traitor, a Judas. For me, he was a man who had great qualities, an outstanding defender with phenomenal power. He had an enormous impact in the five seasons he had with us, and the club would have not been the same without him. But I know what he had to endure to play for Arsenal. There is, of course, an historic rivalry between Arsenal and Tottenham Hotspur. To begin with, Arsenal was a South London club that set up in the north of the city, near Tottenham's territory. More than any other match in the season, the week before a game against Tottenham was unlike any other week within the club. From the Monday onwards, the tension and nerves would be at their most taut. I was more removed. I had come from abroad, but I could still sense this tension very clearly. Anyone who had endured this traditional rivalry would realise that for this one week, everybody would be on alert, as if the air raid sirens could sound at any time. In short, it was more than a mere football match played between two teams of 11. Within North London families, those who supported Arsenal and those who supported Tottenham would not speak to one another over that weekend. My assistant, Pat Rice, was tempted to select only the fighters, but it was always the technicians that allowed us to win, such as Robert Perez or Thierry Henry. It was important to stay totally zen in regard to that state of tension. The competitiveness between the two clubs was at its all-time high when we played our first match against Tottenham with Soul in our team. He had been a legendary Spurs player and there were never-ending shouts of Judas from Tottenham fans. After these derby matches, there were frequently brawls in the street. It was difficult to get out of the stadium when we were leaving White Hart Lane. A game lost to Spurs left us in a terrible state for several days afterwards. It's just as well we didn't lose very many. We became Premier League champions five matches before the end of the season. I often relive those 49 undefeated matches. I do believe in signs to a certain extent. And as I was born in 1949, I sometimes tell myself it was our destiny to lose the 50th. Those 49 matches are etched within me and within each player. It's something fundamental, a triumph born of passion. Okay, Brucey, did you enjoy that? Good. Good night, Brucey. Sleep tight. And don't let Gary Pallister bite. So it's the part of the pod where we pick another player for our Simpsons lookalike 11. We've already got a pack midfield with Gilles Grimondi, Diego Simeone and David Villa, who are also known as Jacques the Bowler, the Yellow Weasel and Dr. Nick Riviera. It's back to Dan now for his pick. Dan, who have you went for? Thank you, Stephen. Well, I was looking at the team that we have so far and I was thinking, this team needs a goalie. Oh, And this week, Stephen... My Simpsons look alike. I have went in goals. It's McBean, aka Ranier Wolfcastle, the movie star from The Simpsons. And his look alike is the one and only big goalie. It's Peter Schmeichel who will take his place between the sticks. Two men, two, two big men who command respect, take no nonsense. They're both all action dominate their areas. They have both had great acting careers. 
with Ranier starring as McBean in a number of blockbuster action movies, and Peter Schmeichel, a star of Pepsi adverts, and of course, who can forget Danish Bacon? There's no better in the business than McBean and Ranier Wolfcastle, and that's why Peter Schmeichel is our Simpsons lookalike of the week, and this team is going to be hard to stop. It certainly is now, absolutely. Peter Schmeichel going straight in as the action hero, the massive figure that is McBain. I can clarify this for you, Dan, because I bumped into Peter Schmeichel doing a bit of work at St. George's Park. He was doing his UEFA A license badge, and I was completely awestruck just by the sheer size of him. He would have been, you know, he's the same frame as Wolf Castle. So, yeah. like any football fan, <laughs> like any football fan, I asked for a wee photo of, of the great Dean and, um, and he put his hand on my shoulder and I remember looking over at these massive shovel hands on my shoulder. I can only compare it to me putting my hand on my five-month-old son's shoulder. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's how big Peter Schumacher's hands were. He's uh, a big man. He's a big man. He needs to train. So great pick, Dan, and a perfect lookalike for McBean going straight in to our Simpsons 11. It's my pick next week, but I don't know if I can top that. Well, I'm afraid that's it for this week's pod, folks. But don't worry, we'll be back next week and we'll be jetting off to September 1997. We've got three brilliant battles, starting with the UEFA Cup tie between Glasgow Giants, Celtic and Liverpool. Our Premier League action comes in the way of Chelsea versus Arsenal. And next week's foreign feast is a tasty affair between Inter Milan and Fiorentina. It's Ronaldo versus Batistuta. Can't wait for that one. Our quiz will be a 1997 special. Brucey will be back splashing in his bath. And Dan picks his maverick and Mush picks his madman of the week. So it's good night from me and it's good night from Dan. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. And it's good night from Mush the matchman. Say good night, Mosh. Good night, Mosh. See you next week.